how do you know Khalil uh, Rami? Rami. Oh, it's funny. We I went to GW for medical school, and he was okay. above me, so I don't really know him that much. But we're LinkedIn friends, and then I saw it, and I was just like, "Oh my god, this okay. is so cool!" They have a Lebanese podcast. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, Khalil actually is at GW right now. His faculty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Um. Oh, I thought I know Rami. I don't know. Um, Khalil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. Full, full yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I went there for medical school. Yeah, it was. It's an. It's a nice. And where are you? I'm currently in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I did my undergrad in Michigan, and then med school in Lebanon, and ended up working in Saudi. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's great. So I'm. So you're neat. born and raised and everything in the U.S. I was. My dad was born and lived in Beirut, and then um, he went to American University of Beirut, and then he came to the United States and and went to Berkeley for graduate school. And then um, my mom was born in the United States, but um, her parents are from Palestine. Okay, cool. And have you been? I have not. Well, not. No, I have not been as an adult. So okay. <laughs> it doesn't count. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, I would like to go. Yeah, it, w- it would be really fun to go to um, Lebanon and visit family. We have a lot of, co- I have a lot of family there. So, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. A lot of my cousins go. It's just hard because um, every time I would be in like medical school or, you know, I have so many like, it's just hard to take like a month off to go, you know, like all my cousins would take like a month and go for a month in the summer and spend time there. But, it seems really neat. It seems like a really nice place. Cool, cool. So yeah, you have an open invitation, even though neither Khalil or I are in Lebanon right now, but we always uh, tend to go, uh, especially in the summer. So hopefully next summer things yeah. will be stable yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah. And even two weeks, you don't need a month. Like 10 days, 10 days to two weeks is, is good. You don't need a month. Yeah. Like yeah. it's an over. So Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lebanese uh, Physicians Podcast. Usually, uh, I host this with Khalil, but today I'll be doing it uh, on my own. And we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Rina. She went to uh, George uh, Washington for medical school, uh, and then she went to Jefferson Health for her dermatology residency. And now she's an attending in dermatology, but she also hosts her own uh, podcast. And she's actually the first guest that we host who has her own podcast. So... I hope uh, some of our listeners will make time to listen to it. And uh, today we have something very special to talk to her about. So welcome, Dr. Rina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Definitely, definitely. I know I talked a little bit about your medical background. Is there something you want to add or talk to us? How, how you got interested in dermatology uh, to begin with? Yeah, so I went into medical school really keeping an open mind. I think a lot of people say that just I didn't really have any specific idea of what I wanted to do. I thought maybe internal medicine. And just because I did some rotations as a college student in the emergency room and, and working with um, different hospitalists. And they had this really neat opportunity um, while I was at GW during my first and second year in the summer to work at the NIH as a summer internship within the National oh. Cancer Institute, which was really fun. That's in Maryland. And I got to work, was placed with um, two der- dermatologists, and I got to work with them and see these really interesting rare skin conditions, got to go to the DC DER meetings and the um, Walter Reed DER meetings and the Grand Rounds. And 
Uh, from there, I just really loved um, the field. I thought that it's such a complex field, such a diverse field. You get to see adults and pediatric patients. You get surgical outpatient surgeries, really preventative medicine, which is kind of what made me interested in um, dermatology as well, um, skin cancer screenings. My interest was in psoriasis at the time. And so um, helping those patients and kind of that Derm Rheumatology Association link made me interested in it as well. And then during my rotations, I just got, again, kept a very open mind, but really just dermatology was always a passion of mine and, and um, kind of in the back of my mind. And then I did more away rotations and I kind of landed in Philly because I had an incredible away rotation in Philadelphia. And I just had a wonderful experience working with the, the doctors there, going to the Philly derm meeting. So that's just kind of my journey, dermatology. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. I know a lot of students go into med school and they, a lot of their classmates seem to know what they're going to specialize in. And I know for me, it wasn't the case. I thought I wanted to go into orthopedics and I ended up in primary care. So yeah. it's good to hear from other people who didn't know what they wanted to get into, but ultimately everyone finds their path, I think. Yeah. And I think my biggest advice for even students who work with me that um, might want to go into dermatology, I think when I applied, I was told that, you know, it's really difficult to get into dermatology and that most people don't match into dermatology and just have those expectations. And so my biggest advice is if you really want to do it and you're really passionate about it, then try to do as much as you can do as much research and kind of put yourself out there. And if you don't match the first time, not a big deal, try again. So I think a lot of people want to do dermatology but they're scared because they think that it's competitive or they may be told you might not be a great candidate and just kind of keeping us an open mind. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good advice. I know a lot of students, especially if they're not like top 10% of their class are told straight up, don't even apply. You don't have a chance. So it's really good to hear from someone who made it through that. You, you can do it. Just, just give it all you can. So that's, that's good right. advice, I think. And it's interesting that you talk about uh, prevention because I'm really passionate about that. And I guess that's something we're going to talk about today in our podcast. And maybe we can talk a little bit in general about the types of prevention that you do as part of uh, your dermatology practice. Right. So I think one of the main things is skin cancer screenings. Skin cancer is one of the most common cancers and melanoma is something that we actually try to catch very early in the early stages. So because it is, unfortunately, if it is, does spread, you know, it can metastasize, it can um, spread to other organs. And so a lot of people may not know that how deadly and how lethal um, melanoma can be if you leave it untreated. Um, and a lot of people, you know, especially Middle Eastern people don't know that they need to get skin cancer checks. And I know firsthand from my family, my dad never thought that he needed a skin <laughs> cancer screening. Uh, most Arab don't think that they need skin cancer screenings. But in fact, um, just because you have a, a dark skin color or complexion, you still are susceptible to getting skin cancer, especially non-melanoma skin cancers. And those are skin cancers called basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. So typically, you know, we think of those as pink pearly bumps um, or acne-like bumps or sores that don't heal. Um, and I have found several in patients of skin of color um, and specifically Middle Eastern patients. So just because your, your skin is darker doesn't mean that you're not susceptible or you're immune to these. And then also 
I think a lot of Middle Eastern patients have, they're not a fan of sunscreen or they maybe can't find a sunscreen that blends in very nicely because it looks white and pasty. So getting into a dermatologist and finding a sunscreen, there's so many great moisturizers out there that sneak sunscreen in them that really blend in very nicely and you can incorporate it into your daily routine. But I can't tell you how many times, you know, people will come to see me for acne or eczema or hyperpigmentation as Middle Eastern patients. And I ask them, has anyone ever looked at your moles? And they say, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't need it. Or I have darker skin. I, I'm never going to get skin cancer. And then you tell them about that, yes, you can, and then you you end up finding something on them, you know, then that's what's kind of um, important about, you know, getting them in the door pretty quickly, even with primary care, you know, this really starts early on with family medicine, internal medicine, you know, um, counseling your patients on um, skin cancer screening is, is important. There's a cultural component to it. Whenever I suggest to someone a yearly skin exam for detecting early skin lesions, they just look at me with a blank face, like, what you're talking about, that's only for rich white people, like people like us, Middle Eastern people, that's, that's not a thing. What are you talking about? Right, right. Exactly. I follow the Lebanese Dermatology Society on Instagram, um, which I highly recommend. It's a great resource. They um, posted something a while ago about um, skin cancer prevention and someone had written in the comments like, oh, I don't, I, I don't think we need, you know, something about how we have darker skin and we don't need skin cancer, you know, screening. So that just goes to show you, you know, it's, it's a cultural thing, like you mentioned. Definitely, definitely. And then I think part of our medical education, the textbooks don't have enough pictures of people of colors or people with darker skin. So all the textbook presentations, all the exam questions, historically speaking, I know recently there's been a shift, but historically speaking, for the most part, it's lesions on white skin. So even to me in clinic, sometimes it's a challenge. I see something and I'm not sure, and I have to refer to a dermatologist. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, there recently, um, over the past several years, there's been really a push to have more skin of color resources. And so there's a great resource. The Skin of Color Society actually has a great website and they have uh, great images of skin cancers. Um, They have um, just any skin condition. So even like, for example, psoriasis um, or eczema looks so different on someone who is fair than someone who is a darker skin tone, whether it be Middle Eastern or, you know, African-American, it's just sometimes really, you know, difficult to kind of figure out. And so there are more skin of color textbooks that are coming out, but this is just, you know, of recent. So I think there's definitely some more resources, but I 100% agree with you. Sometimes for those conditions, um, you know, you have to train your eye to figure out, okay, is this, is this something that's benign or should I be concerned about it? And then uh, you raise the point when it comes to sunscreen. And I know like in Lebanon in particular in the summer, everyone forgets about sunscreen and they go all out on like tanning oil. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I briefly mentioned too earlier, just that, you know, the, uh, the aesthetic component of a sunscreen. So maybe they don't like the feel of it or it's white and pasty. Um, and then they, you know, there's, it's interesting because I think some people really want to be tan and really dark, you know, there's a, also a group of people, Middle Eastern people who want to be very fair, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but I think that um, the most important thing is, is finding something that someone's going to use every day. So I think that's one of the things that um, patients struggle with is that 
it one, they don't want anything that's going to be a hassle Two, they don't want anything that's going to clog their pores or cause acne bumps. And then they don't want anything white and pasty. So I'll, that's why I think there's a lot of moisturizers out there that you can even buy at the grocery store that are really inexpensive, um, that you can use every day, um, and just kind of get in the habit of it. And they're, they blend in really nicely. They have a lightweight, um, formula, so they're not, it, and also it, it's a built-in moisturizer. So you hit two birds with one stone. So for people who don't like sunscreen, and there's some, a lot of people who are like that, um, some protective clothing is really great. So a lot of people who like to dress modestly, there's great brands out there that have UPF clothing, again, that are inexpensive. There's a, a great brand um, called Amber Noon, where you can buy it online or on um, QVC. And they it was developed by a dermatologist, Dr. Aram Ilias. And um, it's also um, fashionable UPF clothing. So you, things that you can go to work with, um, you know, you can go to the beach or you can go to a social event. So, and that protects you, um, again, from sun exposure. The most important thing is that, you know, wearing sunscreen every day. Now we say the most important thing also is, is reapplying. So people put on sunscreen in the morning and then they go to the beach and they forget about reapplying. So every, you know, hour and a half to two hours reapplying sunscreen. Um, and then, you know, just understanding that just because you don't get burned does not mean that you're not getting a lot of sun exposure. So the fact that you're getting a sun exposure, that, that tells me that you're at risk for getting skin cancer. If you've had any history of extensive sun exposure, it doesn't mean that you have to have a blistering sunburn or get really red. Is the recommendation uh, SPF 50? Uh, or is it okay if it's less than SPF 50? Yeah, so 30 or above is the is a recommendation. If you want to kind of eyeball it, I always say a dime size for your entire face. And then uh, they say a shot glass for your whole body. If you're a spray person, you like sprays, that's fine. Just making sure you're in, you know, putting the spray on inside or not in a windy environment. Because if you're going to spray and the wind's going, you know, it's going to go everywhere. It's not going to get... You know, and if you're listening, you probably remember those times where you've gotten the spray and then there's one strip on your arm or your leg that you just forgot the spray. So um, wearing, you know, sunscreen and kind of getting an even coat there is important. Um, but again, some protective clothing, ears, back of hands, those are areas that we all forget. Um, our scalp, so making sure you wear a hat, protect your ears, the back of your hands. So putting on your sunscreen and then just hitting it the back of your hands before you finish. Those are just some um, helpful tips. Definitely. And um, I recently uh, moved to Saudi Arabia and I cannot recommend enough the car window blackouts. Uh, I know like in Lebanon, at least a lot of people do it for fashion, but in a place as sunny as Saudi Arabia, it's, it's life-saving. Driving a car without the blackout versus with the blackout, it's, you have to experience it to know. Uh, how beneficial those blackouts are for the areas that are exposed when you're driving in the sun in the middle of the day. So in sunny places in the U.S., maybe like in Arizona or California, uh, or even in Beirut, like when it's really hot in the summer, I think uh, that's something worth, worth investing. To, uh, and not, I don't think sun, sunscreen's enough. I don't know uh, what your thoughts are about the blackouts that they have in the cars. Yeah, I think that's great. I don't know. Do you guys get it covered by the insurance or can you submit it to your insurance or how does that work? Or you pay out of pocket for it? Out of pocket. Oh, out of pocket. Yeah, sometimes um, I'd, I've, I've written some letters for some patients that have had history of um, a lot of skin cancers or transplant okay. patients, patients who are more at risk for skin cancer. 
I've been told that they sometimes the insurance will cover a small portion of it, but um, it just depends, you know, where where you live. But I, I I definitely think it's a great investment, especially if you have a long commute, um, you know, going back and forth to work. You know, I think I think that's really helpful, especially being in Saudi Arabia. You have a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's it's worth the investment over here, but. Uh, I want to talk about something you touched on briefly, but I think it's worth discussing. So for a lot of patients, they, they want to be tanned, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you have those patients of Middle Eastern background or other backgrounds who have darker skin. And I remember this product growing up, Fair and Lovely. And uh, recently I've seen like some videos on like YouTube and TikTok and a lot of patients uh, are using it for skin lightening. Uh, do you want to briefly talk about that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one of the main concerns in, in skin of color patients is hyperpigmentation, and it could be something called melasma, which is what we call um, darkening around the eyes, the forehead, the cheek area, um, and some people call it a mask of, uh, mask of pregnancy, um, but people can get it at any part in time in their life. Um, and then some people get acne, and then, then the acne leaves hyperpigmentation, so it can be really, you know, cosmetically frustrating for patients. And so I think there's definitely a good place for lightening agents. I think it's just about safety. So one of the main concerns with lightening agents is if it can cause some skin irritation or something called ochronosis, which is a paradoxical hyperpigmentation. And what I mean is instead of Dark, lightening the skin, we're actually getting the skin to be darker. And though it's not a common side effect, it's it's fairly rare. We can encounter it. And when it happens, it's typically a permanent hyperpigmentation. Um, and so one of the things that I always recommend is looking at the lightening, the, the ingredients that you're using in your lightening agent. So some helpful ingredients that I really like um, is actually topical licorice extract, believe it or not. So oh. I went to a dermatology conference. I went to this really interesting lecture about skin of color actually in hyperpigmentation. And they talked about topical licorice extract. And there are some products that you can buy over the counter that um, sneak in a little bit of licorice extract. Kojic acid and transdynamic acid, these are also helpful ingredients that help to lighten and brighten. Vitamin C, those are really nice and safe. Um, retinol is can be really helpful for you know acne, but also helps with hyperpigmentation. It prevents the melanin or the pigment um, production. That can be helpful. And then hydroquinone. So hydroquinone is um, kind of one of those um, tried and true. We know it works for hyperpigmentation. The issue, the concern is, is that um, the percentage of hydroquinone and the how long you're using it. Orally or topical? Oh, topically. Yeah, topically. Okay. Yeah, topically. Okay. So topical hydroquinone, um, there's a 2% and a 4%, but there are some formulations that are higher. And that's, you know, um, a, a huge issue when you're using too much of it or too high of a strength because it can cause this this condition called ochronosis, where the skin almost looks black, very dark, um, and it can be permanent. And even unfortunately, some laser treatments may, may not be 100% successful in lightening it. One of the other you know, things that we worry about in lightening creams is mercury. So believe it or not, um, you know, um, and this has kind of been an interest of mine to kind of give you a background history. Um, uh, several years, um, years ago, 
Um, I encountered a patient who came in with just a numbness and tingling in his fingers. Um, and he actually came in with darkening of his skin, but he was describing that he's been seeing his primary. He's had, you know, they told him peripheral neuropathy. They can't, they did a whole workup. And then he was showing me the products he was using and he was getting them from abroad. And some of them had mercury in them, trace elements of mercury. And so we ended up sending him to the emergency room. He had long story short, mercury toxicity. Wow. Household members, um, what people don't know is that mercury can be, you know, um, not just direct contact, but it can be in the air. And so we had asked him to also check his family members and, and get them tested um, for mercury levels. And um, But mercury toxicity can happen in a lot of in the United States and in certain countries, there is a little bit of, um, you know, they're trying to regulate these um, cosmeceutical products. But I always say this, that skin lightening is a huge industry. Um, it's a, I think I was reading, it's like a multi-million dollar industry where, you know, worldwide in Africa, in um, India, Southeast Asia, South America, Middle East, you know, there's a push for these lightning creams. And so being a really educated consumer, looking at the ingredients, making sure that you're not harming your skin. I think that, you know, some people don't know that if they're overusing these lightning creams, they can actually make things worse and actually worse in the hyperpigmentation. So those are just some things that, you know, just to kind of look out for. Um, one thing that might be helpful is kind of figuring out what's causing your hyperpigmentation. So is it hormonal? Is it because of acne? Um, and then kind of getting started on a good regimen and sunscreen, because when you're out in the sun, that hyperpigmentation is going to even highlight more. So just making sure you wear sunscreen and then laser treatments can be really helpful. And um, going to a, a dermatologist that's familiar with lasers and skin of color, there are so many great lasers now that can really help to safely target that hyperpigmentation without leaving scarring or making things worse. No, no, that's, that's some uh, really great advice. What are your thoughts on injections for skin uh, lightening? Skin lightening? So yeah. um, I usually don't do, some people, you know, I've, I've come across some reports of people doing steroid injections for lightening. Is, is that what you're referring to? I, it, it was like a trend, like on some TV show for a while. I think it was like, Glucathione. I, oh, I oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, I have not done that. I, I, I think I've come across some articles. I think they, um, in, I think it was in, I forget some, um, Southeast Asia where they were, were doing that, um, to, to lighten the skin. One thing you can actually take orally is something called transdynamic acid. You can take it orally and you can do it at low doses. It's just really close, really for those patients, close monitoring, it can increase your risk for blood clots. Um, so, you know, you want to really just kind of keep a close eye on those patients. Um, sometimes I'll even um, check some blood work, make sure it's not impacting their kidney function. So just kind of doing that. But usually there's so many great topicals now and laser treatments that with less risk, you know, if you're using them safely, I think that would be my best advice. No, no, I was just going to say, it's, it's good to hear this advice from uh, an experienced dermatologist, because I think a lot of the time for those skin products, people just ask around or see like, a viral hack and you don't know what's real, what's hype. And a lot of those products like actually cause harm. And we're talking about mercury poisoning, which is something 100% avoidable. 
it's always good to remember that you need to use reputable products that are like tested and safe and to always check with your dermatologist because a lot of those products on the market are, are, are just not safe. Right. Yeah. And some of them don't even, someone brought in something that he got from somewhere in Mexico and it was just like this jar. It didn't really have any ingredients in it. And, you know, it was just kind of looked like paste and he was putting on his skin. So, you know, it's a lot of times it's just a more cultural thing. Oh, my grandmother, my grandfather, my beta gave me this cream to use on my face to lighten the skin and it worked for her. You just want to be careful with what you're putting on your face. Because at the end of the day, it's skin is our largest organ. It's very important to kind of be careful in what you're applying on your skin. Yeah. And a lot of the times those natural products are, 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 not, are not natural. Right. And I think a lot of people get rashes. I've been seeing some poison ivy like rashes because people are putting lightning creams and these lightning creams, if you look at the ingredients, they're just filled with maybe 20 to 40 botanical plant-based ingredients. And just because it's organic or from, from plant derived, it, it could be really irritating to your skin. And so that's just something, you know, you have to be on the lookout for. Definitely, definitely. So uh, we've, we've talked about skin cancer prevention. We've talked about using sunscreen. We've talked about uh, balancing skin lightening. And you have a diverse patient base, uh, including a lot of um, Middle Eastern individuals. Are there any particular challenges you've encountered uh, in terms of dermatological care? Any other cultural contexts you want to uh, highlight or talk about? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think I'm very lucky right outside of Philly, we see we see a lot of different patients, different skin types. And I think one of the most challenging things, well, one is just I think people um, may not, like we mentioned before, they may not necessarily come in for skin cancer screening. Um, the other, I, I think, is just a concern for their skin color. So some um, darker skin types, Indian, African-American, uh, Middle Eastern, they want to be more fair. And I, not just with skin lightening agents, but they just are really saying, why is this part of my skin dark and my inner part of my arm is not dark? You know, what can I lighten my whole body? You know, so I think it's just kind of um, educating people about sunscreen use, realistic expectations. I think, you know, in terms of cultural for Middle Eastern in general, I think getting them on a good skincare regimen, I think sometimes we are very simple when it comes to kind of treating our skin and making sure, but, you know, I think some people want to use so many different products. And I think with Middle Eastern people or just any patient of skin of color, just making sure they're using the right products so it doesn't irritate their skin, doesn't make their skin darker. You know, those are some just things that I counsel patients on. But really, um, just really getting them in the door and seeing a dermatologist, that's the biggest challenge. You know, to be honest, we they come in with something else and then we, you know, convince them to do a skin cancer screening. So get them into a gown. But yeah, but that's the biggest challenge. No, definitely, definitely. I can resonate with that. There's, especially in family medicine, we're, we're trying to speak for so many things. And then when we bring up skin cancer, there's just like the blank face. Like, what, what, what are you talking about? Like, is this even real? And then when they tell them that, it's, it's the most common uh, cancer. Like, uh, yeah. but it's, it's, it doesn't get enough attention. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, I hear it all the time from patients that come in and they'll, They'll come in for acne and and then I'll say, you know, do you, you know, do you want to have me take a look at your skin? They're like, no, I'm good. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> so I think that's, 
I think, you know, and it really starts at a young age. Now I'm noticing, I don't know if you notice this too, where you are at, but younger because of TikTok and social media, which I think there's definitely a place for these things. They're really encouraging younger people to be more proactive when it comes to skin health and wearing sunscreen every day and putting a, you know, cleansing your face and washing your face. Like I'm noticing a lot of my young adult patients and, and teenage patients um, and even pediatric patients, I asked them, are you wearing sunscreen? They're like, yep, I'm wearing sunscreen, which is funny because when I was younger, there was not, I don't remember ever wearing sunscreen when I was every day on my face, um, you know, and so now there's a big trend for, you know, skincare regimens and all these different types of different trends that people are doing. Yeah. And, but that's the thing, they're trends. So you don't really know what's like true and tested and what's just like a right. viral trend. <laughs> Right, exactly. I think that there are some, you know, I've noticed some people coming in and they're doing these just slugging or putting like just thick ointments on their face and they have oily skin and then all of a sudden they've, they're coming in with cysts. So I think there's definitely some, you know, I take everything. My best advice is, um, you know, take everything with a grain of salt um, and make sure that you're getting it from a reliable source. There's a lot of great dermatologists on social media um, that post some great resources. Just a plug for my podcast, um, Skin the Surface. Um, I started it really just to kind of encourage patients to be proactive about their skin. And then I kind of started it because I found that there were so many people were coming in with all these different trends that they were coming in with and products and questions. And there was a lot of misinformation out there um, from people who aren't even in the medical profession. So um, I decided to do it just kind of targeted towards the average listener. So you know, there are other podcasts out there too, that are also similar to me, very targeted towards the average listener, really just trying to educate you on, on very um, important things regarding your no, Definitely. We'll, we'll leave uh, the link uh, to your podcast in the show notes and uh, we'll blast it on social media. Yeah. I think it's, 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 it's good. It's good to have it from a reliable source because a lot of uh, people out there on social media they, they don't reveal their true credentials. And once you look into them, there's no substance and there are a lot of paid advertisements that funnel into it. So it, it, it's, it's always good to have it from a trusted source. I think that's the most important thing in the age of fake news and social media and all of that. I also use it as an opportunity to interview people too, and just within dermatology or outside of dermatology and just kind of learn myself. And so I think for people who are having questions about certain skincare products or things that they might be embarrassed to ask their dermatologist, finding resources like these um, can be really helpful um, just to kind of, kind of stay away from advice that might not, like you said, we don't know who these people are and they don't might not reveal their credentials. I stay up late at night looking at TikTok and Instagram and I find these articles and these reels and things. And if I wasn't in the field that I was in, I could easily be sucked into doing these um, different trends. Before we conclude, I want to ask you, there's a lot of apps right now geared towards the medical community to use like AI picture-based applications. Is there anything on the market uh, geared towards patients? Do you use any of them in your practice? Yeah. So one thing that might be really helpful for patients 
Well, the American Academy of Dermatology has a great, um, you can download their app or go on their website and they have great resources for patients. The other thing that we use in dermatology is something called Visual DX, which you typically need to subscribe and pay for. But um, there are some free resources through there that just are just a bunch of pictures. I've had, you know, I've uh, directed some patients to it just because there's something they're concerned about and they you know, haven't, don't have time to see me right away and they have to wait. It kind of eases their mind. So they're not waking up in the middle of the night thinking, do I have a melanoma? You know, and just kind of, it gives them some, you know, reference pictures and it, it's really nice. And they also have pictures um, of various different skin types. So they do a great job of having, you know, skin of color um, photos as well for, you know, various different conditions. I know that um, AI is a big thing now in, in medicine in general, and I think th that there's going to be a lot more AI resources in dermatology. Um, even within our conferences, there are some of these great tools that they're starting to develop, which you might see in your dermatologist's office where they take your photo and it's it kind of it zooms into every different distinct lesion. It can kind of show you the amount of sun damage that you have. We still do full body photography for patients who have a lot of lesions or history of skin cancer. Um, so now they're starting to create applications where we can do full body photography that the patient can go home with those photos as well. And they can zoom in and they can see, you know, those lesions um, in a very clear format. So there it's definitely um, in an evolving field within um, dermatology um, AI. Fascinating. It's, it's an exciting time to be in definitely. I know uh, visual DX, but I for mostly for providers, but it's good to know that they have some free resources for patients. Uh, I think we covered everything we wanted to talk to uh, you about today. This was super helpful, super insightful. I learned uh, a lot of things, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners learned uh, from your journey into dermatology and uh, from your clinical practice. Any final thoughts you want to share with us or say to our uh, listeners? I just want to say thank you so much for having me. And I love that you have this podcast, the Lebanese Physicians Podcast, because I think it's really important. I think hearing and just listening to your other episodes, I really enjoyed. I learned so much from them. Um, and so thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming. And uh, your podcast is great to listen to. I enjoyed the one when you, when you interview patients, because a lot of the times it's just us medical people talking to each other. So it's really interesting to have a doctor talk to a patient on the podcast uh, and to have other people listen to it. So we'll definitely leave the link to your podcast in our show notes. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was nice meeting you. Nice to meet you.